Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. All right, our reading comes from Matthew 5. We're going to read chapter 17 through 20. Does somebody have that page number? Which one? 810, page 810 in your Bibles, if you're looking for it. All right, so it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, family. Let me just remind you as we kind of dive into this that uh, this preaching thing is a weird business. Like, it's, it's weird if you don't know this. This is weird. Sometimes we're just not at our best when we do this. We're tired, we're exhausted, our capacity is not what it normally is. Some days we say things that we shouldn't have said. Anybody ever heard me say something I probably shouldn't have said? Sometimes we say things in ways that we don't mean it. We, sometimes we raise more questions than we can answer in this setting. Very rarely are we ever the men that we intend to be or want to be when we have to do this. All that to say this, that we need the help of the Spirit of God to get into this. I mean, this just can't ride on me, and it can't ride on you. We need help, okay? So let's ask him. Don't just listen. Ask him. Father, speak. Pray with me. Father, take your word now and do what the words of a preacher and a teacher could not ever do. Sink them to the depths of our being and help us to understand them, not only to help us understand what you said and who you said it to, but how it applies all of these years later. Help us to understand what you want from us, and more importantly, give us a burning desire to be faithful to you, to love you, to trust you, to follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you guys for standing with us. So let me do this. I raised a question last week, and I may not have given you answers to it, and that's okay. I think sometimes it's okay to raise questions. I think sometimes it's okay to teach us how to question. Um, So I raised this question last week about the scriptures. So are the scriptures in and of themselves good, or does it only matter what we do with them? Okay? So I raised that question, and I think it's an important question. As a matter of fact, I think it's going to be a more and more pressing question that we kind of wrestle through in the days ahead, especially in the West. There is this kind of movement where we're talking now about what what do we mean when we talk about the authority of Scripture? How authoritative is it? What parts are authoritative? What parts are not? What parts do we kind of leave out, and what parts do we pull in? And so there is a lot of this, and I think some of it's really good, and some of it's really healthy. Some of it's also pretty dangerous. And so you kind of got to have to work through some of this, and I think there's going to be a lot more of this. Do we take the Bible to be sufficient and authoritative, or do we take it as partly good, and now we have to decipher what we do with it? 
Okay, so let me just see if I can give you some handles that there is a movement right now and a, a, a thought process. And I, I read a guy who's kind of brought this to my attention and I don't necessarily agree with everything that he says, but he kind of exposes some of the places where I will not think about on my own. Okay, so that's why I read people like that because I know that there are some deficiencies in me and I need help with some of those. I don't have it all together. And so I read guys sometimes that are a little different than me. And one of the things that he repeats over and over and over again is this, is that we should be more concerned with being Christ-like than we are with being biblical. Okay, so just sit in that for just a moment. It's confusing, it's heavy, it's theological, all of those things, right? And, I, and here's what I want to say. I understand where that comes from. Okay, I have my own thoughts about it, and we can wrestle that out and what that means, and is it right or is it not right, and we can talk about all of those things, but I want to be gracious because I understand where that comes from. That comes from a place where we have far too often seen people, as a result of engaging with the scriptures, end up in a place that was entirely unchristlike altogether. Right? And so there's a place of woundedness there. There's a place of hurt there. And we have to take that into consideration and think about those things. But the question still remains, is the book good? Are the scriptures good? Or is it only what we do with them? Here's my submission to you. As the sole authority on the subject, just kidding, by the way, right? I believe that Jesus is concerned with both. I believe that Jesus is not only concerned with how you view Scripture, but also with what you do with Scripture. I think both are extremely important and extremely relevant. As a matter of fact, if you look here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, we're talking about this, right? He says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Remember last week, if you weren't here, we'll just kind of give you a pass and we'll forgive you. The law and the prophets was a Jewish way of referring to the Scriptures. So this is Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament Scripture. And he tells you that he's not come to destroy those or abolish those. He's telling that he's come to fulfill those. In other words, what Jesus, the way Jesus viewed, especially the Old Testament scripture in his day, because that was the only scripture that he had at that point, right? If I do this, okay? He looked at scripture as if it was authoritative will of God, the revealed will of God. Okay? So Jesus, the people and the culture of Jesus' day had this high view of scripture. Jesus had an even higher view of Scripture, okay? And he lived underneath its authority, underneath the authority of the revealed will of God. And so, but he goes on then and he says this in verse number 19. He says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, do the same, will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus now, he moves from what he thinks about Scripture to what we do with Scripture. Did you see it? So not just what scripture is, but what we do with it. So both of these things matter to Jesus. Now, again, I raised some questions last week that we don't have time or space to answer in this setting. Do we take Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament scripture? And do we now look at all of scripture that way? I would say yes. Okay, Some might argue that, but I think I, and there's good reason for it and there's good debate. Number one, here, here it, it just boils down to this. Our faith originates in the teachings and the practices of Jesus Christ. Anybody know where I get that from? Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. The beginning of it, the end of it, right? And so we follow the teachings of Jesus. The New Testament teachings, even though they might be packaged and phrased differently, they are the teachings of Jesus. And they are harmonious with the Old Testament, believe it or not. I mean, it blows my mind. There are some things that are different, but Jesus is not introducing something new. He's bringing us back to the heart of what has always been. So let me give you a for instance, and I'll get way ahead of myself, but I have two favorite prophets in the Old Testament. Anybody want to take a guess at who they are? Isaiah and Micah. Whoa, how did you guess? 
have two favorite prophets in the Old Testament. One of them's Micah and one of them's Isaiah. I don't like them. I don't like some days the present versions of them. No, I'm just kidding. I love them. I love my kids. I love my kids. I also dislike my kids. I'm just kidding. So Micah, the prophet Micah, he says this through God. God takes him and it's, it's, it's almost this big courtroom scene where God calls all of nature to bear witness, right? And he calls them, he says, bring them along. And he, and, he, and he looks at the people, his people, who have existed underneath his rule and reign for all of these years, and he says to them, how have I wearied you? How have I asked too much of you? And they say, but we've given Sabbaths, and we've given tithes, and we've kept the holy days, and we've done all of these things. And God says, hey, I've showed you what I've required of you, O oh, man. This is what it's been from the beginning. You're not without evidence. Here's what I want. I want you to do justly. I want you to love mercy. I want you to walk humbly with me. That has always been what God is after. This is not a New Testament teaching. This has always been the heart of God. And so all of these things mesh. And so we could talk about this all day. I believe that we ought to then in turn. But here's, here's, let's set all that aside for just a moment. What if you don't agree with me? Let's just say, let's, for the sake of argument, let's say this. That we should see all of Scripture the way that Jesus viewed the Old Testament. Why in the world is that even relevant today? Listen, man, some days my life is a wreck, right? Are we just really here to talk about theological positions? Or does this have some kind of actual weight in my life on Monday morning when I go to work? Let me tell you this. The way that you view Scripture and the way that you engage Scripture will always, always affect how you follow Jesus. It will always shape the kind of person that you are and are becoming. The way that we view and engage Scripture will always affect the way that we live our existence as the people of God in this world around us. It is phenomenally important the way that we view this book and the way that we use this book. Okay? So now let me walk you through this text and kind of show you how this pans out. Okay? Because I believe this is pretty relevant. We will try to go fast, but we will try to not to go too fast. I'm tired. I'll just be honest with you. Like, I'm exhausted physically. Like, I want the stool. I want to sit down is what I want to do. Don't bring it to me because I will. And then I'll get up, and then you guys will be more worried about me standing up or sitting down. So let's walk through this, okay? Um, I make fun of dyslexia sometimes because it's kind of prominent in our family, but let's, let's work verse 20 backwards, okay? Um, let's kind of walk through it backwards. So Jesus says, sums up this section, which is a transition to everything he's about to say. And he says, I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteous, that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will what? You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so let's, let's break it down piece by piece. The kingdom of heaven. Okay, this is a huge subject in the Gospels. It is a huge subject in the book of Matthew. Already multiple times Jesus in this sermon has referenced the kingdom of heaven already. John and Jesus both have told us that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, this is big in the New Testament, and it is also big throughout all of Scripture, but it takes up a lot of real estate in Matthew, and so it's important for us to understand that Jesus is tying everything he's saying here to 
the kingdom of heaven, which is a promise that runs through the Old Testament and into the New Testament. It was the hope of the people of Israel. And so now Jesus is saying, hey, listen, everything is attached to this. And we don't have time really to unpack all. I don't even know that I understand all of the kingdom of heaven. But it is this really broad picture. In one sense, it is here and at work already. And in at least in some sense, it is yet to be fully fulfilled. So let's see if we can kind of put our hand handles on it like this, okay? The kingdom of God is where all of life and all of creation rest and live underneath the perfect, beautiful rule and reign of God, okay? All of it. it so the promises are thick throughout the Old Testament of what this day will be like, but it is essentially the day when everything will work as it should have always worked to begin with. It is this view of what is now present on earth where hearts are submitting to the king and his kingdom. It is also about what is to come, this future kingdom that will one day culminate in God dwelling with his people on a new heaven and a new earth. Can I just preach for just a minute? At the heart of what Jesus is referring to is when all of the promises will be fulfilled. All of them will be fulfilled. Like every last detail and ounce of it, when his good rule and reign will be over all of the earth, when the whole earth will actively be full of his glory, when Jesus will sit upon David's throne in Jerusalem, where nation will not rise up against nation, where people will no longer walk in the imagination of their evil hearts, when swords will be turned into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and nation will not lift up sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. Our time when our existence will be peaceful, safe, a system of justice that will be righteous and righteous for all. Healthy and long life will be the norm. The earth itself will be so healthy that the mountains will drip sweet wine, the Bible says. Boy, that would make a Baptist uncomfortable, won't it? I mean, how healthy? I mean, listen, you know it, right? Like, like I just moved into a house, and I like, I like, I'm just like any dad, right? I like a good, pretty grass. Anybody with me? I mean, just like a good yard. And I moved into a house full of weeds, you think I'm silly, but I don't think they're, listen, I believe all of creation will be so beautiful, I won't worry, no weed killer anymore. I don't know if that's really true, okay? Remember, I, to, I told you up front that I tell you a lot of things that may or may not be true, okay? I just, this is the reality that creation will finally be as it was always intended to be. And what Jesus is saying here is directly tied to that. The kingdom of heaven is at stake here. Everybody see that? The kingdom of heaven, when all the promises will be fulfilled. And, and listen, man, there will be, when all of this traces out to its very end, sorrow, crying, hurt, heartache, pain, despair, loss, even death itself will die. This is what's at stake. Now, Jesus says, Except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Seems a bit harsh, right? Seems a bit exclusive for this meek and mild Jesus that we like, who ironically never fits into any of the molds that we force him into. Nevertheless, I believe that Jesus is using this term intentionally, and he's trying to get us to feel the weight of what is being said here from the mouth of Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, the redeeming king. He says that there is a very real possibility on missing out on all of the fulfillment of God's promises. There is a very real possibility, and he wants to be clear and not misunderstood that there is a way in which we can miss the kingdom altogether. 
Never enter in, he says. Some translations will say in no wise. Others will say by no means. Jesus is being extremely intentional with his words here. I mean, he does it again in Matthew chapter 7, where he says that many will say to me in that day, did we not do this? Did we not do that in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. This is emphatic, so I want you to understand what what is at stake here. Jesus is telling us that the kingdom, when all of the promises will be fulfilled, is absolutely conditional. It is not automatic. Now, this is scary. Understand, so you've got to hold on for the whole thing, right? Don't stop. We've got to keep going. But it is at least to some degree conditional. There is a sense and a way in which we can approach all of this and we can miss the kingdom of God. Everybody with me so far? Okay, Jesus says that the way that we miss it or the potential to miss it is that if our righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribe and the Pharisee, it is conditional upon righteousness. Everybody with me? The condition upon whether or not we experience and enjoy the kingdom of heaven is Righteousness. Dictionaries define righteousness as a behavior that is morally or justifiable or right. Behavior that is characterized by accepted standards of morality, of justice, of virtue, or uprightness. But the Bible's standard is a little bit different. It's not just doing what we think is right. The Bible's understanding of righteousness is God's own perfection. In every attribute, in every attitude, in every behavior... In every word, thus God's laws as given in the Bible both describe his own character and they constitute what he expects of humanity. Now, all that's big and all that's huge, right? Let me just put it this way. I think this is perhaps a little bit simpler. It's easier for me to wrap my mind around. Righteousness is life as it was intended to be. Okay, unless we get kind of off on this track and we make God to be out some cosmic dictator who only needs to have his own way, the Bible's picture of righteousness is never that. We can interpret it as that, right? But it is never that. The Bible's picture of righteousness is always good for me. It is always in my best interest. I know this, this blows my mind. This absolutely blows my mind. But Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek, right? So if you get up and you slap me, which I don't know. No, don't. He was like, bro, I got you. I can handle that, right? Kids are all ready for my sermon illustrations now, right? He slaps me, and then Jesus calls me to what? Oh, is he being literal or is he not? We have that debate later. That doesn't feel better or good for me, right? Can we be honest? Forgiveness doesn't always feel right or better. But you know as well as I know that if you follow it, you will find it to always be better. Because whenever I harbor this and whenever I hold this, it doesn't hurt the person that I harbor it or hold it against. It poisons my own soul. And Jesus is not giving us something that is a dictator. Jesus is giving us bounds and confines that help us to live life as it was always intended to live. This is righteousness. Righteousness is not the cosmic rule of some dictator. Righteousness is the loving rule of a redeeming king. And so um, hopefully that will be enough. And so Jesus says that the enjoyment of the fulfillment of every promise that is and is to come is conditional upon righteousness. This is not a new teaching for Jesus's audience. Not new. 
They'd always understood that God expected righteousness. His standard was always righteousness. They were fully aware that God required this, that he revealed his expectations so that they would live by them. This was always their understanding that the kingdom of God depended upon righteousness. Because if you bring unrighteousness into the kingdom of God, you thus ruin the righteous kingdom of God. Everybody with me? Makes sense, right? I'm going somewhere again. You just hang on just a second. We're almost there, I promise, okay? And so Jesus demands, and I want you to kind of sit in this, okay? Because there is this tendency to think that Jesus expects less of us when that seems to be far different than what the scriptures teach. If we just take it at its surface, verse number 20 tells us that Jesus expects his of his followers, not less than the Pharisees and the scribes and the Old Testament saints. He expects more. This is heavy. Even when Paul argues, and we were talking a little bit about this, and we discussed some of this about the relation of the law to the New Testament, all these kind of things. Even when Paul argues about not being under the law, do you know what he's arguing there? He's arguing obedience. He's calling men and women to be obedient. So the the very fact that we're not under that, he says, ought to motivate you to live in obedience, to slay and put to death every ounce of sin. I mean, this is the reality that he's talking about. The New Testament doesn't call us to less, brothers and sisters. The New Testament calls us to more. And here's why. Because it's not just about the way that we behave. It is about the condition of our hearts that he has always been after. And so this is huge because in the culture of Jesus' day, this definitely would have been a shocker. Not that Jesus is calling for righteousness, but that he is calling for a righteousness that exceeded the righteousness of what they considered to be the most righteous people on the planet. So picture it in your mind. Who is it that you think has got it down? Like, is it Spurgeon? Is it John Piper? Is it Matt Chandler? You don't know any of these names. Count your blessings, right? It doesn't matter. You've got somebody in your head that you would think, you know what? If Jesus was on earth, that's probably about the closest thing I think I could, I could find to it, right? And this is the way they thought of the Pharisees and the scribes in that day. They were the standard of righteousness in that culture. They were looked up to. They were respected They were seen as strictly adhering to the laws of God. And Jesus says that the only way to possess the kingdom of God is a righteousness that exceeds their own. What they understood in that culture is the height of righteousness. Jesus says this isn't enough. It's not enough at all. They were right that righteousness was required. But here's the truth that Jesus is telling us. Not all righteousness is accepted. I want to tell you that again. Righteousness is required. But not all righteousness is accepted. There is a wrong righteousness. And this is the way that they read scripture. It brought them to this place. We cannot afford to miss what Jesus is saying here. He calls his followers, the people of his kingdom, those who live under his rule, his reign, to more, not less than those of the Old Testament. On the surface of what he is teaching, more is required. Jesus does not relax the standard. He raises it. You've heard that it was said, don't murder. Jesus says, no, I'm I'm talking about hatred and hostility in your heart. You've heard that it said, hey, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't look with lust in your eyes and your heart. You've heard it said, you've heard it said, you've heard it said. And Jesus gives six examples of the way that they had interpreted the law. And he says, no, this is what we are after. 
And it is after something much more, much deeper. And this is where we begin to find something that I believe is incredibly helpful when it comes to the way that we view and read the scripture, okay? Because Jesus reads it incredibly different from the religious people of his day. So when you read on later in the text of the Sermon on the Mount, we kind of get behind the scenes of what the way Jesus reads and interprets and understands the Old Testament scriptures. We see that he believed the law and the prophets pointed past a strict adherence to a bunch of rules and extended to the depths of our heart. This is what Jesus believed about the scripture. That much deeper than action alone, Jesus believes the scriptures are to affect us all the way to the heart level. That it was not just the righteous deeds of the law that were required, but a righteous heart that God required. Hear me again. It is not just righteous deeds, and it has never been just righteous deeds that God has required. It has always been that God is after a righteous heart. Go back to Exodus 20. It's there. Go back to Micah 6. It's there. All throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is after a heart that conforms to his way of life. This has always been. Decays. And Jesus will unpack these. The rest of chapter 5 deals with attitudes of the heart. The first part of chapter 6 deals with spiritual practices like fasting and giving and praying and how they should not stop doing those, but that we should do those with the right heart. Chapter 6, the end of it, is about how, what we seek the most at the heart level. Chapter 7 is about our relationships and being more serious with the own sin in my own heart than I am with the sin of others. In all of it, Jesus is teaching us that it is not simply enough to read the Scriptures. It is not simply enough to obey the Scriptures. We need the heart of the Scriptures. So let me frame this this way. It is not just enough to do what Jesus would do. It is to do what Jesus would do with the heart of Jesus. More than righteous deeds, righteous hearts. So it's important to understand that religious leaders and teachers and the culture at large at that time, they read the scripture in such a way, and I want you to hear this, okay? They read the scripture in such a way that it led them to a place that it was never designed to lead them to. This is fundamentally important. Throughout all of the teachings of scripture, They had taken what God had given them with a specific end in mind. God gave it to them. And they arrived at a totally different conclusion than what God gave it for. They took the scripture, something as beautiful and powerful as the scripture, but they so twisted it that actually what they came to the conclusion of was radically different and not even remotely similar to what he had called for from the beginning. Not even close. So we can't afford to miss this, that there is a way in which that we can engage the scriptures. Listen to me, people. There is a way that we can engage the scripture and we can entirely miss the heart of God in doing it. Entirely miss the heart of God in doing it. This is not a new fad. This has been around since the beginning of time, even how we have always cast doubt and called into question the word of God. There is a way in which we can engage scripture that will shape us into the wrong kind of people. Their understanding of the scripture led them to the wrong understanding of righteousness. Now listen, we don't have time to do all this. We'll get to all of it in Matthew. We'll hit it. Jesus really deals in this in Matthew chapter 23. Let me give you a couple of quick handles here about how they engaged scripture and what it led them to. Number one, it led them to the entirely wrong conclusions. Okay, By that, here's what I mean. 
They read scripture in such a way that it led them to believe that what God required was to be strictly adhered to a moral set of rules rather than to have the right kind of heart. Okay? This is the way that they read read scripture. They literally edited it. They added so much to it so that they could protect their perceived understanding of the law of God, that they added traditions upon traditions. They actually used his revealed will as the source material to get so far off when all along God was after a heart that was alive to him and his ways. It's clear from the beginning, and they had arrived at the wrong conclusion, and they engaged scriptures in such a way that led them to the wrong conclusion. They read scripture in such a way that caused them to drill down on lesser preferential things. They neglected the weightier matters of the law. Do you remember Jesus has this conversation with them? You tithe of everything you have, right? You give much, you pray much, you, I mean, you do it all, you fast much. He said, but you've left out some things. Love and justice, mercy and faith. Do you know why they left those out? Because it's easier for me to give money than it is for me to love and forgive. Now, I know money's a hard deal. I get it, right? Like, I get it. I understand that. But it will always be easier to give money. It will always be easier to come into church and to say a prayer than it will be to love. And what happens is this, is they read scripture in such a way that it pushed them to drill down on things that were partial and not whole. They concentrated on lesser things that they can control, interestingly enough. They weren't universal or total in their approach to obedience. They conformed to what they liked. They ignored what they didn't. It didn't rise from purified hearts or principles of grace. It wasn't from a sincere heart for God's glory. They cleaned up the outside of their lives with the great attention to detail, but on the inside was full of death and decay and corruption. And their righteousness was defective because of it. They read and practiced scripture in such a way that it shaped them into the wrong kind of people. The scribes and the Pharisees, experts in the law, but what literally they saw themselves as better than everybody else. They saw themselves as superior. Their prideful hearts were hardened against all those who were not like them. Can I give you a little side note? If our reading of scripture ever leads us to be harsher towards people who aren't like us, we have read it wrong. Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. I will get bold for just a second. And if we want to talk about this, we can talk about this. Again, I will talk about anything with anybody, but you have to buy the coffee. The scriptures do not make us harder towards people. They don't. The recipients of grace can never understand themselves as better because of the grace they have received. Grace doesn't make me better. Grace makes him better. Hear me again. Grace doesn't make me better. Pick the, pick the bum on the street. Pick the guy who's evil. Pick the kid who, guy who's neglected his kids and forsaken his family. I'm not better than him because I haven't. I'm not. Grace has captured my heart, and the only thing that might be is it's different. But it is not better. God is better. God is better. His grace is better. However, they read the scripture in such a way that made them feel superior. They were so tribal. Jesus said, you don't even enter into the kingdom of heaven, and you prevent those who would. 
They'd so separated themselves from humanity that they saw humanity as a poison that they needed to protect themselves. They, re- they read the, uh, the scripture in such a way that led them to the wrong kind of existence in the world. Their understanding of scripture turned them into the spiritual police. They were harsh. They were hostile. They were binding heavy burdens upon people. They were policing behavior rather than existing for the redemption of the world. Do you know that Israel exempt- existed for the redemption of the world? And they turned inward. They read the scripture in such a way that it didn't push them outward. It turned them inward. And here's the last thing, and I'll give you this. They read and practiced scripture in such a way that it drove them to the wrong source. Turned them inward. It was a self-righteousness. And when what the law ought to do, as Paul has argued, as Jesus will argue, should never push us to the point where we go, you know what? I got to try harder, try harder, try harder, try harder. What the rule of Jesus ought to do is it ought to push us to the fact that we realize that there is a righteousness demanded of me that I cannot come up with on my own. You know why Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't murder? I say, don't hate? Because one is a little bit easier. And one will get you regardless of who you are, where you're from, or when you exist. Right? And so what was intended was that this would bring us to the end of ourselves and make us realize that we need a righteousness that we cannot attain to on our own. But the way they read and interpreted Scripture made them think that they needed to develop their own. As a matter of fact, Paul will argue this. He says that the Jews, I want them all to be saved, but they're after a righteousness that's in ignorance. It's not the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of their own. They're seeking to establish it by the law, and the law never could have done that. Paul even will say this, that I've, I, 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 I had the righteousness, but it wasn't the righteousness of God, which is by faith. I had the wrong righteousness. Here's the truth, people, and you have to hear this. They read the scripture in such a way that it led them to the wrong understanding of what God wanted and expected. They, it wasn't that they read the Bible too carefully. Please hear me. It wasn't that they read their scriptures too carefully. It was that they did not read their scriptures carefully enough. They used a holy God-given resource and they twisted it to serve their own end. And because Jesus has such a high view of scripture and he's also clear about how we do it and what we use it for, he is correcting them and he's calling them back because there is a way in which you can miss it entirely. Their approach to scripture turned them inward rather than upward. It turned them inward rather than outward. It left them as the ultimate authority rather than him as the ultimate authority. It made them awful people and it was actually a hindrance to the kingdom of God flourishing in all of creation. And here Jesus stands in such sharp contrast to the leaders of his day. Because Jesus doesn't believe the scriptures are less authoritative. He believes that they're more. He just believes that there's a right way to live underneath them. And I don't have time, but I'll give you two points that just, here here it was. The way Jesus read and interpreted scripture moved him in compassion towards others and it moved him in surrender to his father. If my reading of scripture doesn't move me to compassion towards others, and if it doesn't move me to be more surrendered to the rule and reign of Jesus, then I've probably read it wrong. And it happens, right? Man, it happens. Can we just be honest? Like people... And even people in here, even people up here, 
have mutilated this thing. Go back all the way into the medieval times and the Catholicism and what it did in the Inquisitions and holy wars and how they would. There's atrocity after atrocity traced back to this book. Do you understand that? It's not that it just that it happened, but that it happened and we sourced it from this. We talked last week about racism and slavery, segregation, and all of those things. I don't know if you understand this or not, but there were people who sourced that. Not all of them, but there were people who sourced that to this book. There are still people who sourced that to this book. And listen, we can argue all of those things, and I think we should. I think we should have a good reason and a good answer for those kinds of things. But the reality is this, that you can read this book in such a way that it will cause you to entirely miss what God is after. And it is happening every day. Slicing this book up and mutilating the scripture over and over and over again. And listen, it's done on both sides of this. I'm going I'm to get in your business for just a second, okay? Again, take it up with me later. We see this when people are trying to take parts out of scripture to make things that our culture says is okay, okay according to this, right? Everybody with me? Okay, we also take this and use this to build cases that we really want to be true. So you can go over here and you can live on the liberal progressive side and see it all the time, right? You can go over here on the conservative side and see it all the time. I heard a 30-minute discussion on why the book of Deuteronomy supported the Second Amendment. Now, I know, who I, I know where I'm at. <laughs> right now, some of you got your hand on the trigger already, right? <laughs> so hold on, hold on, okay? I'm not on your opinion of the Second Amendment. Listen, we can have that discussion and we can have that debate. I, that's not my, what I'm doing here. I will tell you this, though, that if you use this to build an airtight argument for that, you might have missed what this is about. I know that's uncomfortable, but we got to stop talking about all the sins out there. I mean, we got to get close to home, right? I will tell you this. There is something in me. On my best days, there is something in me that would much rather define what is good for me than to accept his definition of what is good for me. That goes all the way back to the garden, ladies and gentlemen. It's not new with you. It's not new with me. That is our DNA. And it is common temptation for all of humanity to take this book and to use it to their own ends. And I will tell you this, that those things happen not because we read the Bible too well, but because we do not read it well enough. And you and I, Grace Harbor, listen. We have a chance to be different. I mean, don't you want to be different? I mean, I'm tired of all the fighting and the ins and outs of things that just. What if we saw the scripture and approached the scripture like our redeeming king? What if we became the kind of people that it ought to shape us into people of love and justice and mercy, people of faith and patience and grace and forgiveness? What if, because of the way that we approach the scripture, we move towards others rather than withdrawing from others? 
What if because of our approach to the scriptures, we were more willing to be obedient to him than to argue with him? Is the way that I read the scriptures remind me that his way is better, even when I don't understand it? Does the way that I read the scriptures move me to seek to bring the entirety of my life under his rule and his reign? Does it motivate me to organize my whole life around following him? Does it move me towards a broken and desperate world in compassion and grace? Does it stir my longings for the redemption of others rather than the condemnations of others? Does the scripture and the way that I approach it and the way that I read it and the way that I value it and the way that I interpret it, does it make me more like Christ? Not a Christ of my own making. But does it make me more like Christ? I will tell you this. I do not think you can be Christ-like without being biblical. But I do think you can be biblical without being Christ-like. And if our biblicalness doesn't make us like Christ, then we've missed it. Stand with me. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. I would suspect that this feels weighty to you, as I think it should. I don't always like weighty. Matter of fact, I prefer times when we're not weighty and serious. But in reality, some of these things are weighty. And the way that we engage scripture is weighty. And we as the people of God have a chance to pursue and press into using it well. The redemption of the world is at stake. How we use and engage scripture will determine and will impact how the gospel is spread. So may we ever be serious. Father, I pray that if I have been bold, I have been bold in a gracious and compassionate way. I pray if there has been conviction, that it has been conviction that draws us to you and doesn't harden our hearts. Pray that if you have pressed into us, that we do not push away, but we draw in. Because we know that you would never do any of that that is not for our good. And so we pray that as Jesus viewed the scripture, and as Jesus approached the scripture, and as he engaged the scripture, that that would be our way of doing it. Because we understand that we can do it in a way that leads us to a wrong understanding of what it is that you require and what life is all about. We don't want to do that. We want to use your word, not for our end, but for the end that you gave it. Our hearts will fight it. They will resist it. The enemy will fight it. He will resist it, but we pray that you would give us the grace to do so. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. As we sing, come and be reminded of the grace of the Lord Jesus.